Let's get our Bibles out open to Acts chapter 20, page 1280 on the Pew Bible in front of you. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you want to just grab that black hardback Bible open to page 1280, you'll find Acts 20. Uh, it's good to be home. Still a little bit jet lagged, but I'm excited about being here. And God's got a word for us this morning. It's been, uh, people oftentimes ask me how many times have I been to Brazil, and I have lost count, quite frankly, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 plus times. And uh, over the last 10 years, all the work that uh, we have been a privilege to be a part of down there. And, um, you know, God never ceases to amaze me. I uh, don't know if it's just the fact that uh, at this particular time, God is doing something that's so extraordinary. Uh, it, it's just completely uh, beyond my comprehension to allow us to be a part of it. Or it could be a combination of that and the fact that I've been preaching through the book of Acts. And then I literally lived the book of Acts for 10 days. Um, suffice it to say that for the vast majority of us in this room, you will never know the impact that this church is having around the world until we get to heaven. You will be amazed and astonished. It is unbelievable what the gospel is doing and where it is going, and how it is flourishing right now because of this congregation right here it is truly an amazing, astonishing reality to be a part of it. And it, as hard as it is to leave, uh, it makes it a lot easier to be able to come back to uh, a people like you. Thank you for your obedience and your love for the Word of God, which leads to your love and commitment to the mission of God. And God bless you. You're an extraordinary people, and God's doing extraordinary things through you in Brazil and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before your Word, and we simply in gratitude and humility, say, God, this is your word. It's perfect. It's inerrant. You spoke this, intended it for us. I pray that your spirit will work mightily in the preaching and teaching of it and that you will grant ears to hear and hearts to receive that you might be glorified by what's done here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So you already have your listening guide out, so the question that's going to center around our time together in the Word is this, is your life or the gospel of Christ more precious to you? This is uh, in the providence and sovereignty of God, the uh, pressing question that I've lived out for the last 10 days on the mission field and is in this text that I return home to. And uh, God has just orchestrated things. It's only He can. Even the testimonies that we heard this morning just bear witness of how He 
uh, is in every detail. And so we need to honestly and genuinely ask ourselves this question. And I realize that in our culture today, asking a question like this, um, you know, is a, is a bit of a, a dangerous thing because uh, for most people, uh, I, I never want to force you into a situation where I know you're going to uh, deceive yourself or be deceitful before the Holy Spirit. And yet, uh, I really wrestled with whether or not to, to press into this question because uh, it's a scary question, but it's a real question that you need to wrestle through and you need to ask yourself. And we all need to be uh, real with the fact that life brings tension into this question. That there are moments, well, I'll use my life for an example. There are moments in my life where uh, I'm 100% confident that the gospel is more important to me than my life. And there are seasons where that is true. But there are times when uh, certain pressures in life come upon us and we, we go through certain things and we find ourselves uh, not where we ought to be. And we couldn't, with distinction and determination, answer this question the way we ought. But Paul could answer this question. He could answer it without any hesitation. And we see that borne out in Acts chapter 20. Let's look at the first few verses. Acts 20, beginning in verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, so this is the uproar in Ephesus that Pastor Brian preached about last week from chapter 19, Paul called the disciples to himself, and he embraced them, and he departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece, and he stayed three months. Now let's just pause for one second. So Paul goes through this... uh, difficult uproar because of uh, people are forsaking their idols. And so all of the uproar that you learned about last week that ensued because of that. And yet again, Paul finds himself uh, simply trying to obey Christ and trying to do what God's called him to do. And it is uh, ever difficult. There's always obstacles and persecutions and trials and so on and so forth. And yet what does Paul do in response to this? But he calls the disciples to himself And notice what the Bible says, he embraced them. He embraced them. He just called them unto himself and just embraced them and just was a physical representation of his deep love for them and for who they were and for what they stood for and to encourage them because he knew he needed to go to Macedonia because we know from 1 Corinthians that he has to go there to receive the offerings from the Macedonian churches on his way to Jerusalem to help the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. And so all of this is fitting together like a perfect puzzle. So when, God, when, uh, when he went out and he had gone over that, to that region and encouraged them with many words, so when he came to Greece, that's Corinth, when he's in Corinth, he stayed there three months. Now this is the three months he's in Corinth where Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will pen the highest deepest, most glorious theological letter that's ever been written in the history of the world and ever will be written, the book of Romans. And so it's here that the book of Romans, uh, God births that out into uh, existence. 
And if you remember in Romans 15, here's what Paul says. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Why? That I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. You see, he's just, he's just recalling what he's going through and the struggle that he's facing at the hands of the unbelieving Jews as he's trying to be obedient to God, but how he loves the brethren and how there's unity and fellowship and togetherness. And he has, he has learned from his season of being alone through uh, Athens that that's not... Paul is, is utterly devoted to fellowship uh, as he comes through that season of that low season of, of being alone back in chapter 15 and ensuing. Look at the second half of verse 3. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So here Paul is going to get on a ship and he's going to sail to, you know, to Syria and which would have been a, a, a simple little journey, but instead he finds out that yet again the, there's a plot to kill him, and they'll, no doubt as soon as he gets on the ship and the ship uh, gets out to sea, they're going to throw him overboard. And so what does he do? He turns around and goes backwards, back the, just an incredibly long journey back across land through the Macedonian churches. Look at verse 4. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. And Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. And so as he goes back through Macedonia, he starts picking up these leaders in all of these churches and areas as he's going through. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. And so we can see that Luke is back now in the picture. He had left Luke for a while to watch over the church. And now Luke's back. So it says he waited for us at Troas. Verse 6, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, the... Days of unleavened bread, that would have been the feast which lasted seven days immediately after Passover. And so remember that here Paul's goal is to be in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. That's his goal. Uh, but he's, he's collecting these men, these leaders along the way. Now what is going on here? It just seems like we, were, we sort of have this informational passage before us, but we don't. We see a man who's being continuously and greatly persecuted. And what is he doing? He's embracing the disciples. He's encouraging each of the churches and the leaders to continue to be faithful and to be strong. He's pouring the gospel into them. And he's also collecting individuals on his way. Each of these men represented the churches of the Gentiles. And remember, he's going back to Jerusalem. And so as he's He's going back to Jerusalem. He's going to take all of these leaders with him that represent all the churches from Corinth and Galatia and all these Gentile believers and how unified they are. And imagine the testimony that that's going to lead to when he arrives in Jerusalem 
where the Jerusalem church is going to be blown away by what's happened. I mean, this is just so crazy that all of this is happening because as, as I've spent the last week in Brazil, the whole time in the back of my mind, I just kept thinking like, I mean, the people in my fellowship have no idea what, what, of the magnitude of the things that are going on. And it would have been like as if I could have uh, brought a leader back from each of the churches that we've planted across this place where there's no gospel. There's literally zero gospel. The name of Christ has not ever been named. And now there are thriving, flourishing churches that are discipling people, that are led by indigenous pastors. They're multiplying, and they're going out to yet further villages into the Bashada and reaching them and preaching the gospel to them and drawing them in such that when I show up after being gone, for some months or a year, as I show back up there, I am literally in awe of what has happened in my absence. And if I would have collected leaders from congregations in Villanova, and you could have seen how they're reaching Kumaru, and I could have brought people back from Ponta Dabacaba, where you put the well in, where now all the sores are off of their children, and there's no more jaundice in their eyes because you've provided fresh water for them, and how they're rejoicing, and how literally 90% of that village has come to faith in Christ, and they've built a temple, and they're worshiping God in the church, and they have leadership there, and now they're excited about reaching other churches. If I could have brought someone back from there, if I could have brought you a leader from Agarape Granji, if I could have brought you someone from Jeju and shown you how there was a little boy there named Jacques Nelton, who when we met him several years ago, some of you remember the picture of his face, he was literally about to die. His eyes were so yellow, I don't know if he would have lived but weeks. We walked into that village undoubtedly the first Americans to ever set foot there. It just so happened that that little boy's father was the president of that village. And so I talked to his dad. We call him Jackson. And I said, would it be all right if I send someone to the city to retrieve some medicine for your little boy? And he sort of looked at me like, halfway would you do that? And halfway there's medicine? And for $15, and to see him running around, kicking a soccer ball with joy, just as healthy as he could be now. But you see, someone's got to go. Someone's got to send. And when we do, the things that God does, and I just imagine... I imagine as Paul is bringing these leaders from these Gentile churches, as he, as he walks into Jerusalem with them, they, they have no, I mean, it's not like they can, they're not, they're, you know, they're, they're not keeping up with Paul's tweets. They don't know what's happening. It's not like they can, you know, uh, keep up on cell phones or Skype in or FaceTime or whatever the case may be. It's similar to where I've been. You might as well throw your cell phone in the lake. Well, I mean, it's a camera. That's all it is at that point. It's just a camera. But you see what Paul is doing is he's, he's showing us his utter devotion to the gospel. That no matter how hard it gets, 
no matter how difficult it is, no matter what the persecution is, no matter, he is committed 100%. And if it costs him his life, will it, which it soon will. But if it costs him his life, so be it. He didn't just say to live as Christ and to die as gain. He lived that way. He lived that way. And believe me, when the, when the Spirit of God is working around you in such power and such force and you're seeing miracles on such a regular basis and you're just walking in this, in this beautiful moment of, of just uh, sort of disbelief, not in what you're seeing, but that God would allow you to be a part of it. And just the reality of how powerful the gospel is. I can tell you that I miss my wife and my kids, but my life means little to me in that moment. I'm so consumed with what is happening around me and what I'm seeing, and there's nothing on this earth better than that. That's where Paul is. Look at verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, many of you know people who maybe are caught up in the seventh day Adventist situation. Uh, Acts chapter 20 verse 7 is pretty much uh, the simplest, clearest way to know that they're completely wrong and have horrible doctrine. The church meets on Sunday after the resurrection. It's the first day of the week. It's not the last day of the week. Paul and the disciples come together and they celebrate the Lord's Supper because that's what they do because it's Sunday. So the Bible says Paul ready to depart the next day. So now, now think about this. He's just traveling all through Macedonia. He's on just warp speed pace. There's no rest for him. He's no doubt worn down and weary, but he's not, he's not slowing down a bit. So he's ready to depart the next day. And what does he do? He spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. He doesn't rest and take a nap. He starts preaching. Now, I'm going to confess to you, this is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible right here. And it gets better. So then there were many lamps in this upper room where they were gathered together. So that's information that Luke wants you to know how stuffy and hot it was getting. And so there, verse 9, in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus. Love Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. I know a few Eutychuses. <laughs> he was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So get the photograph here. Paul's preaching, and he just keeps on rolling until midnight. He's going. Eutychus... The moral of this story is if you're sleepy, don't sit in a windowsill, okay? Falls asleep on a third-story windowsill, falls out and dies. Verse 9, or verse 10. But Paul went down, so he stops preaching, goes down, fell on him, and embraced him and said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten... And talked a long while, even until daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So you see what happened? 
The guy falls out the window and dies. Paul says, okay, we're going to take an intermission. Goes down, lays on top of him, raises him from the dead. Then they celebrate the Lord's Supper, go back up, and Paul starts preaching again and preaches all the way until daybreak. So basically, he's going to depart with zero sleep. Now, I want to clarify something because I don't want you to leave here in error today, which would be very easy for you to do. A lot of you would interpret this passage of Scripture this way. That you shouldn't preach long sermons because people could die. <laughs> and I don't want you to be in error. I want you to have the right interpretation of Scripture. I want you to understand what the Holy Spirit intended by this passage, which is, don't fall asleep in church or God might kill you. Amen. So what we see from Paul in this limited time that we have together, okay, we see a man who is unceasingly devoted to the gospel. Now let's ask some questions or let's examine some things. First of all, the gospel is more precious than my life because, number one would be, believing the gospel is the only way I actually keep my life. It's the only way you keep your life. You see, the reason that, that that's what, what troubles me is the fact that the question posed is so excruciating that I live in a culture that that's an excruciating question. That's the most bothersome, troublesome situation. Because when you begin to read the Bible and what the Bible says about the gospel, you would think, well, no one who has access to the Bible would not view the gospel as more precious in their life, would they? Because the Bible says, for example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Now, when Jesus says that, is Jesus wanting you to lose your life? No, he wants you to save your life. In other words, you ought to want to save your life. That's a good thing. If you want to lose your life, that's a problem. And so Jesus is encouraging us to save our life by losing it, because that's how we save it. And so the very idea that a person would value their own life more than the gospel is so counterintuitive to the gospel itself. Because in doing so, you literally forfeit the thing you're trying to hold on to. Because the Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly. Life, that's the point. He came for life. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, the Bible says, who is our life. He is our life, according to the gospel. If he is our life, how can we treasure something more than the gospel when the gospel is our life? We're deceiving ourselves. And yet, let's... Face the reality in which we live in. 
The church of Jesus Christ is riddled, literally overflowing with so-called believers who in direct and total opposition to the gospel live for themselves. And in doing so, forfeit the very thing that they're trying to cling to. And is it any wonder why the Bible would say things like, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Oh, didn't I do this for you and that for you and this for you and that for you? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You're a worker of lawlessness. You were busy doing things, but they were for you. They weren't for me. They were for you. The way to life is narrow. Broad is the way to destruction. Listen, it does, I don't care how long you've been coming to church. I don't care how many people think you're spiritual. How many people look up to you. I don't care what positions you've held or what things you've taught I, or whatever disciplines you think you have. You better be sure you better understand one thing, clear. You cannot treasure your life more than the gospel and not lose it. You can't do that. You cannot do that. And in a world, our world designed to surround you with every temptation... To feed yourself and your pleasures. Beware. Number two, the gospel is more precious in my life because sharing the gospel is the only way I help others have true life. It's the only way. Listen, you, if you see the gospel for what it is, if you treasure the gospel for what it is, then you understand that your highest and greatest purpose in this life is to share it with other people. You would not treasure the gospel and then just hoard it to yourself. You wouldn't do that. You couldn't do that. And you would understand that your purpose in this life, in this world, is to glorify God. And in doing so, it would be to share the very gospel that you receive that means the most to you. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, you got that right. He's not. Because he understood that it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now, if you believe that, see, if you believe the second part of that, you can't be ashamed of it. The only way you can be ashamed of it is if you don't believe that it's the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter 10 is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know how beautiful? Very beautiful. You know why? Because it's the most beautiful thing you can do. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. No other name. So is the gospel more precious to you than your own life? I mean, really, is it? How is Paul pressing us to peer honestly into our own heart and say, God, I need to make some changes. What are those changes? Show me. 
Show me the changes I need to make. Show me the things that you want me to see from this passage of Scripture. Well, let me just help you a little bit. How did Paul come to the place where he is? I mean, it was a, it was a journey, just like the journeys we just heard testimony of. It's just like the journey you're on. It's a journey. But he tells us over and over again in various different ways. For example, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He tells the Corinthian church that. He's telling them, I am imitating Christ. You don't need to wonder how it is that I uh, am the person that I am or do the things that I do or understand the things that I understand. I'm imitating Christ. And in so many ways, the gospel tells us about Jesus and his commitment, right? I mean, think about it. In the book of Ephesians, the Bible says that we're to love the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He gave himself for his bride. He loved her so sacrificially that he gave himself away. He gave all of himself for her to redeem the church. This passage will come up on the screen. Matthew 13, verse 45 and 6. You know this little parable Jesus told. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking a beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. There's a lot of confusion about this parable and the parable of the hidden treasure. A lot of liberal theology roaming around, a lot of confusion, a lot of people butcher this text to no end. Well, let's make sure that we're clear. There's a merchant who's seeking something. Who is a merchant? The word merchant, it's a, I mean, you know that a merchant in the Bible is somebody who travels to distant lands and seek of something. Uh, this particular word in Greek is a word that is used to describe a person who traveled, whether by sea or by land, but who traveled to great distances to find something that he's looking for. And so this merchant is someone who, who left his home and went somewhere far away in order to seek, in order to find something that he, he saw such value in that he was willing to go to wherever he needed to go to find that. And who is the merchant in this parable? It's not some lost sinner looking for the gospel. That's unbiblical. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 3 that no man seeks after God. So whenever you hear some fruitcake trying to tell you that this verse is talking about somebody searching for God, it's impossible. It's unbiblical. Who's the merchant that traveled to any lengths to find what he was looking for? It's Jesus. It's the one who left heaven. And traveled all the way here in search of this great pearl. The pearl that he's seeking is what? It's the salvation of sinners. He came to seek the lost. He came to seek after salvation, to bring the gospel to us. That's the great pearl. You notice in verse 46, you need to get your pens back out. Some of you just pack up like you're fixing to run out of here. You didn't learn nothing from Eutychus? You think you filled in the last blanks and we're just going to roll out the door? That ain't going to happen. So just settle in a second. Get your pens out. Open your Bibles back up. 
Go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 46. And when it says, who, when he found one pearl of great price, put a big circle around the word one, O-N-E, one. He didn't find two pearls or three pearls or a stack of pearls or a, a cornucopia of pearls. He found one pearl. That's a, that's a very important detail. Why did he only find one pearl? Because there's only one pearl. This is Jesus in a parable teaching us that he is the way, the life, the truth. No one comes to the Father but through him. There's only one gospel, one salvation, one Savior, one way to God. There's no other way. There's only one great pearl. And that pearl is the gospel recorded in the 66 books of this Bible. And it's through the doorway of Jesus and no other way. So there's one pearl. The Bible says in verse 46, and when he found this one pearl of great price, look at the second app. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again. When people try to make this merchant some lost person searching for God, What does the Bible say about lost people? They're dead. Dead people ain't got no money. Dead people have no resources and no ability. You're, you're broke. You're poor, blind, and naked. This is the merchant who left heaven and traveled to earth searching for the great pearl. And when that merchant, the merchant, found that pearl, what did he do? He gave everything to possess that pearl. Isn't that what the Bible says? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Amen. He gave it all away to possess the pearl so that we could be a part of his family. Paul learned from Jesus how to put the gospel above all other things. Here's what fascinates me about this parable. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Why did he say pearls? Why didn't he say rubies? Why didn't he say emeralds? Why didn't he say diamonds? Why does he say pearls? What is it about pearls? Why is the kingdom of heaven like a pearl? Where does a pearl come from? A pearl comes from an oyster, but only one out of every gazillion oysters produce a pearl. So what causes those oysters to produce a pearl? Something external has to enter into the, the, the oyster. Something, an aggravation has to come in. Something nature didn't intend comes in. One grain of sand gets inside that oyster and begins to aggravate that oyster. So the oyster begins to secrete this fluid to coat that grain of sand so it stops scratching and aggravating and causing harm to the oyster. Uh, does that sound familiar? You know what the grain of sand is? Sin. It was never intended to be in our lives. God didn't create us to be riddled with sin. Sin is, and when sin comes into our life, it only causes pain. 
And so what created the pearl was the aggravation. Jesus wouldn't have had to leave home. The merchant wouldn't have to leave and go to the ends of the earth to find the great pearl if it wouldn't have been for the sin. But because there was sin, he had to leave to come and solve it. There's a reason for all of it. You know what happens when you get a, a, a diamond or a ruby or an emerald? It's not pretty. You have to cut it to make it pretty. You ever heard anybody cutting a pearl? No. You know why? Because you don't cut a pearl. You know why? When you find a pearl, you polish a pearl, and it's beautiful, pure white from the moment you find it. You think that's an accident? The Bible says in Isaiah verse 1, God says, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, as a pearl, clean, completely gone, white and clear. What aggravated came in and caused pain in your life that was never intended to be there has produced something, and now it's a pearl. And we have the opportunity, because the merchant left his home, and forsook everything to find that pearl, to possess that pearl, and to bring that pearl. What about the parable of the marriage feast? Ten chapters later in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story about a, a great man who's giving a great feast, and he's inviting people to come. But you know what? Nobody seems to be able to come. You know why? They're too busy. They got all their own things to do. They're too busy making sure their lawn is perfect. They're too busy manicuring their flower beds. They're too busy worrying about their 401K. They're too busy idolizing and worshiping their children and all their activities. They're too busy. They don't have time. They got all these other things they need to do. They have all these other things that are more important to do. So they just make excuses. No, I can't come. I can't come. I'm too busy. I got to do this. I got to do that. So finally, you know what the, the great man does? He says, well, I tell you what. Why don't you go get the, the vagrants? Go get the lowest out there and invite them and bring them in. And here's what the Bible says. Verse 11. But when the king came to see the guests, what did he see? He saw a man there who did not have on the wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. You know what he didn't have? He didn't say, well, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know I was supposed to wear a wedding garment. He didn't say that. He didn't say, nobody gave me a wedding garment. He didn't say that. He didn't make one excuse. You know why? Because there is no excuse. Because the king invited him to come into the banquet, and he tried to come in on his own terms. He tried to come in without what he needed. Because every person invited to the banquet, when they get to the door, before they enter, they put on a wedding garment. They got to put on something that is spotless, white, clean, like a pearl, all the way clean, no stain, not one shred of stain, zero, totally clean. That's the only way you're coming in. But if you get in there and you think you can come in your own way, you're wrong. So look at what happens. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Have you ever wondered, what does that mean, many are called, few are chosen? It means many, many people are invited. 
but few enter in. They try to do it their own way. They try to come in their own way. The gospel is not preeminent in their life. They wouldn't give their life up for the gospel because they love their life too much. They love their stuff. They love all their things that make them happy. But thank God there's a merchant. He wouldn't stop at anything. He's finding that pearl. And when he found it, he gave it all to possess it. What about Revelation chapter 21? You know Revelation 21? That's where John sees a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And isn't it interesting when John's giving us details about the new heaven and the new earth, he's telling us all about the streets of gold. He's telling us all about the onyx, all about the, all the glorious majesty. But isn't it interesting in verse 21 that the Bible says the way to enter in. How do you enter into the new Jerusalem? What are, the, the gates aren't made of gold. They're not made of diamonds. They're not made of rubies. You enter in. There's 12 gates, and every gate is what? It's a pearl. It's a pearl. You know why? Because the pearl represents the gospel, and you only come in through the gospel. And when you put the gospel above everything else, you actually have life the way God intended. And when you have life the way God intended, you share life with those around you who don't know. Look, I ain't slept much. It's a pearl. The merchant came. He didn't take a break. He didn't, he didn't rest. No matter how weary he got. You see, Paul, Paul's going to Jerusalem. He knows they want to kill him there. But he's not backing off. Because he saw somebody else go to Jerusalem. Where he knew they wanted to kill him. But he didn't back off. You see, and so he says, just imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because the gospel is the preeminent thing in my life. I'll give my life for the gospel. What more worthy thing is there? Is it your life or the gospel that's more precious to you this morning? Does he love you? Oh, my goodness, does he love you? He sold everything to possess the one thing that could give you access to eternity. Let's don't, let's don't play any games with God. Let's don't waste any time. Let's be honest. Let's get real. Let's make some changes. Some of you, you need to get saved. Some of you need to get baptized. And some of you just need to get right. 
I mean, I love you and you're amazing, but let's face it, we ain't where we need to be. But while there's still opportunity, we're invited. So let's come in. Because that sin will never bring you anything but pain. Let's stand and bow our heads.